but it's good to be with you. I'm glad to be back. This is home to me. Uh, I crossed the state line of North Carolina. The first thing I did was get a drink of water. So it's good to be home. And Dr. Allen and I swapped out, and we decided this is what he's going to show you how to do expositional preaching. I'm going to show you how not to do it, okay? Um, uh, he's my major professor. I'm still in school, and um, I'm still going to class, although I missed class yesterday. I'm sorry. I was getting in up here, and uh, he is my major professor in my Ph.D. I'm working on another doctorate. Uh, because my first one I don't think took. So, um, but it's good to be here. I'm glad to be at Fruitland. Uh, you guys matter to me a lot. Had it not been for you mountain preachers coming out and voting those years back, this state convention would have never turned. So, good. And it's good to see you, brother, as well. This brother over here followed me at Green Street, and he says they still walk in every Sunday morning saying, thank God he's gone. No, but I hope you've got a copy of God's Word. I want you to take it, and I'm going to take you somewhere. Most of us don't go. It's to the Old Testament. Just hang on, and I'll get you there in a minute. Most likely, the day passed, and you never thought about it. You never realized it. About two months ago, the 11th of August, if you had a Jewish calendar, they, the Hasidic Jews go by a lunar calendar and not the uh, uh, Julian calendar, Gregorian calendar that we go by. Uh, they go by a different calendar, that lunar calendar that told them that the 11th of August was uh, Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the month of Av, which comes, by the way, from the Hebrew word um, for father, and uh, it is the saddest month in the Jewish calendar. And the ninth of Ba'av is the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. By the way, at sundown, when we gather for church tonight, to preach tonight, uh, it will begin the highest, holiest day of all for the Jew. It begins Yom Kippur. You're in the days right now, the time right now, the days of all going back to Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the new year, and then you have these 10 days of awe where you prepare yourself for what begins this evening. But almost two months ago was the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. It's because on that day in 586, 587 B.C. that the armies of Babylon uh, literally destroyed Solomon's temple. It was the third of uh, the invasions of Israel, of Jerusalem, and this time they destroyed the temple. They say that it was on Tisha B'Av in 586, 587 that the temple went down. Now listen to this. You want to talk about a quirk of history. In 70 AD, Titus and four Roman legions, the 10th Roman legion was to the west of the city of Jerusalem, if you've ever stayed in the Crown Plaza outside of Jerusalem, the city, you're staying right on top of the camp where the 10th Roman Legion um, were stationed during the siege of the city of Jerusalem. With the 5th, the 12th, and the 15th Roman Legions, Titus broke through the city walls and they destroyed, literally destroyed, the, the temple that Herod had built, the temple that Christ had gone in and out of. Now listen to this. 
1290 in England on Tisha B'Av, the same exact day uh, that the Jews say that both the temples were destroyed, England expelled the Jews. Sixteen years later in France, in 1306, on Tisha B'Av, the exact same day, France expelled the Jews. In 1492, the same year that Columbus sailed with three ships out of Spain, listen, in 1492, on Tisha B'Av, the same exact day, the Jews were expelled from Spain. Now let me give you the strangest quirk of history. On Tisha B'Av, 1941, by direct order of the Reichstag, headed up by then leader, Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler, came a a command to Heinrich Himmler to begin on that day what was called the final solution. You and I know it as the Holocaust. And you have to ask yourself the question, what in the world is going on on this day? Why is this taking place? If you go back and read the, the rabbis, they will tell you that all of this began back in Numbers 13 and 14 when there came a negative report from the 12 or from 10 of the 12 spies. You recall that very well, how they sent 12 spies to spy out the land. And when they came back, 10 of them gave the report that there was no way Israel could go into the land, that the Hebrews could ever go into the land and take the land because there were giants there. And uh, the Bible says that all night long Israel wept and they said, why didn't we stay in Egypt? Now, in the Talmud, not the Old Testament, and by the way, we'll get to the Bible in a minute. Uh, Let me get you through this history. The Talmud, not the Old Testament, the Talmud, the writings of the rabbis as commentary on the Old Testament, they said that God spoke to Israel that night and said, why are you crying? And let me just translate this as best I can the way my daddy would say it. If you are crying now, I'm going to give you something really to cry about later. And that's exactly where they say Tisha B'Av came from, that it was on Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, that the negative report came from those ten spies. And uh, it seems that there was a major problem with the Jews, and I'm going to tell you what it is up front is that they came to the place where they began to confuse and replace repentance with regret. There is a huge difference between the two. And I want to take you and show you this in the Old Testament. I was telling Dr. Allen just moments ago that the last time you will find the nation of Israel in repentance is in the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. From then on, you never hear of Israel repenting again up until this very day. So I want you to take your copy of God's Word. I want you to go with me to the book of Judges and to the 10th chapter. Really, I want you to look back in the 9th, really back to the 8th chapter, but we're going to get into the 10th chapter in just a few moments. Nobody goes to the book of Judges. We only know two narratives out of Judges. One is Gideon. We know that he started out with a big army and God whittled it down to 300 and he defeated the Midianites with 300 and that's it. We know that. We know Samson, the story of Samson, that he got hooked up with a woman. Don't ever go out with a woman named Delilah. 
And for sure, if you ever meet one, don't get close to her if she's got a pair of clippers in her hand. We know that story, and that's basically all we know out of the book of Judges. But I want to tell you something. Here's good preaching in the book of Judges. And you're going to come to something that is very important in the life, not only of God's Old Testament people, but God's New Testament people, because we're going to look at repentance. Now, y'all are mighty quiet this morning. Y'all still remember how to say amen in North Carolina? Huh? All right. Well, listen. Let me tell you something. Repentance is something nobody preaches on anymore. Nobody does. We are afraid we're going to offend somebody in our congregation. There was a day in time when repentance was a bullet that fit the gospel gun of evangelists that stood in the pulpit. But let me tell you something. It's a piece of ammunition today that won't fit the pop guns we play with when we get in the pulpit. Amen is right. So I'm going to talk to you about repentance. And you say, don't you know you're preaching to preach? That's why I'm going to preach on repentance uh, this morning. Chapter 10 of the book of Judges. Gideon does not finish well. You see that all the way back in the eighth chapter. They come to him. They want to make him king. And he answers with a great answer. He says to them in verse 23 of chapter 8, I'll not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now, just remember that great answer, but he still ends uh, in a terrible place. And let me, let me tell you what he does. He doesn't accept the title, but he sure does act like he's king. He marries multiple women, which is exactly what God said the king was not to do. He does. He has 70 sons. Gideon was a healthy man. Uh, and he had at least 70 sons. He had one additional son by a concubine who, uh, who was named Abimelech. Now, let me give you the name Abimelech, um, which is basically Ab-Melech, my father, is king. So now that's going to pretend for something when you come to the ninth chapter. Uh, he collects gold from the people. And when he gets the gold from the people... He takes it and he fashions it into an ephod. Now, that, that has so much the sound of what is right, so much the sound of Moses, so much the sound of the Pentateuch, so much the sound of the Old Testament priesthood. He makes it a gold ephod, and they begin to worship that thing is what they do. They drift back into their idolatry. Gideon dies, and it's the last time you're going to read these words in the book of Judges. Verse 28, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of... You're not going to read that anymore. That goes away because the people now turn. There will be other judges, but the people now turn pretty much to embrace wholeheartedly pure paganism. Abimelech chapter 9 comes to the people. And he said, my dad should have been king, which means I should be king. Now listen to what he does. He kills the 70 sons of Gideon. He kills 70 of his half-brothers. Now, you can't push this too far. I don't want to make too much out of it, but I, want to, I don't want to just leave it dangling out there. It's almost a picture of the 70 elders of Israel, which represented Israel. So in a sense, you look at this and you almost hear it saying here that he killed out the leadership of the people and he demands to become king and they make him king. 
Now, in the Old Testament, you will come from time to time across somebody who is a type of Christ. Melchizedek, I'm convinced, is a type of Christ. Now, if you want an expert on that, you need to listen. There's not another living expert on Hebrews like uh, Dr. Allen. If you want to get into that, you need to ask him about that. But I think he is a type. I don't think he's Christ. I think he's a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Joseph becomes a type of Christ. When you come to Abimelech, he usurps the place of God in the life of the nation. He demands to be king. He is a murderer. And I think chapter 9 gives you a picture of a type of antichrist. And you say, well, now you may be pushing that a little far. Well, let me push it a little further and tell you this. How does the guy die? A woman takes a stone, throws it out of a two-story window in a tower, and crushes his head. Does that sound like anything to you? You ever heard of Genesis chapter 3? You all there? You with me, you with me this morning? Okay. I was checking on you. So you've got that, which sets up now chapter 10. We're doing this narrative I've got to build the picture for you. You get to chapter 10, and the people go into absolute, complete, and total apostasy. They go into a sevenfold apostasy now, Judges chapter 10, and I want you to look at verse 6. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now count them with me. They served the Baals, the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, seven, seven, which is an indication that they had gone off holy. What does seven stand for? It's the sign of perfection, of completion, of wholeness. They had gone perfectly into idolatry. They had gone wholly, completely into this idolatry. And in fact, I want to tell you something. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit, right here in verse 6, which begins a, a, a whole new section here, it's as if the Holy Spirit is telling you several things. Let me give you three things right here before I even get to what I want to do this morning. Let me show you three things in this. Number one, I want you to see this, that serving any other God other than the one true living God you'll end up serving every other God that's out there. To serve any other God other than the true God, you'll eventually, it's amazing to me how we go from one pagan altar in our contemporary society to the next, to the next, to the next. It's almost like what's going to be served up next? What's going to come up next? What's going to happen next? What's the next altar we are, as a society are going to bow down before? Uh, because when you go after any other God, you'll end up serving every other God that's out there. Now, let me show you the second thing, and the second thing is this. When you walk back into sin, you walk back into the very sin that you prayed for God to deliver you from prior to that. Look at this. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, did I not deliver you? Now watch this. Count this with me. From the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, the Philistines, also the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites, which we think is another name for the Midianites. Seven. You know what God's response to them was? God's response was this. I saved you 
perfectly, completely, wholly, totally from that lifestyle. I brought you out of that. But the thing is this, when you go back into sin, you will always go back into the very sin you begged God to save you from. Now let me give you the third thing. Sin makes it nigh unto impossible to change. Sin makes it hard to repent. The reason why we don't repent is because it's hard. The reason why we don't preach repentance is because our people won't accept it. They don't like it. They won't listen to it. It's difficult to do. Sin is hard to change from. You can never be delivered from it until you repent of it. And amen should go right there. And let me show you something about that. When it comes to this whole thing of repentance and sin, we need to understand something. We need to understand that sin clouds your reason. Do you know why smart people do dumb things? In fact, there's a book in my library entitled Why Smart People Do Dumb Things. It's not written by the Sunday School Board. We don't, do we have Sunday School Board anymore? It's Lifeway. Um, we, it's not written by guys in Nashville. These are two Jewish guys that wrote this out of the business world, and they start looking at men who made really crazy, dumb decisions who are brilliant men. One of the chapters has to do with Richard Nixon. Why would Richard Nixon, when he had a landslide re-election um, in, in store for him, why would he order a couple of thugs to break into the uh, offices of the Democratic headquarters at Watergate? Why would he do that? Because sin clouds your judgment. It creates a fog. You can't make good decisions in the pulpit or in the pastor's office when there is known unconfessed sin in your life. And so you come to this and you understand, listen, it drags on incessantly. You see that they were 18 years under the affliction of the sons of Ammon and the Philistines, 18 years. Why? Because it's hard for us to repent. Because sin makes it difficult for us to come clean before God and to confess to God what our sin is. So I want to take you to this passage now. Just take all of that as introduction. That's all I've done thus far is give you some introduction. But let me take you now to this passage. And I want you to see two things this morning in this. I want you to understand, God, listen, God never forgives those who express regret. But God always saves those who experience repentance. Number one, see this, regret only touches the emotion and never changes the heart. Now let's go to verse six. Let me take you back to it right there. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at the end of that verse. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. What they did was they got this thing cattywampus. That's a good South Carolina terms. 
it got it backwards here. What they should have done to the pagan gods, uh, they did to God. And what they did for the pagan gods, they should have done for the Lord. But they forsook the Lord and they served the idols. Now here comes the calamity in the whole thing. Verse 7, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. Let me tell you, that is slave terminology right there. To be sold into the hands of somebody was to take somebody and to sell them as if they were a piece of chattel. Now, down in verse 13, God's going to tell them, you have served these other gods. Go cry out to them in verse 14. Go to those gods you've been serving. Go to those gods you've been worshiping. Go to those gods uh, that you seem to care about so much and see what they will do for you. Listen, let me take you to Romans, and let me take you to Romans and to the passage over in chapter 6 where you read this. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? God says you've been obedient to them. You've been serving them. You go to them. So we're told here, God says, if you want to act like a slave, I'm going to sell you like a slave into the hands of these pagans. And so God did that. Now listen, he did that with the sons of the Philistines and the sons of Ammon. What he did was essentially this. Here's the calamity in all of this. The old preachers used to preach the prevenient grace of God. Nobody talks about that anymore. Now listen, uh, the Calvinists have their idea about it. The Armenians have their idea about it. The Roman Catholics have their idea about it. I'm going to give you my idea about it. That is the, the hand of God that is in there protecting you from things that you don't even know about, caring for you in ways you're not even aware of. Some of you got here this morning and you were never aware and you'll never know until we get with God in glory. There was a guy coming through an intersection whose brakes were about to give out and God's hand of prevenient grace held those brakes until you got through an intersection. You say, well, I'm not aware of that. And you won't be, like I said, until you get to heaven. There's God's prevenient hand of grace. God's prevenient hand of grace for Israel was this. He kept the Philistines and the Ammonites and the sons of Ammon away from Israel. But now God's hand has been removed because they have gone completely and wholly now into this whole thing of idolatry. They've given themselves perfectly to it. Now look at this. We're told that they afflicted. You see that in verse 8? and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan. Listen, they went over beyond the Jordan to the other side, to the eastern side, uh, to uh, the area of Gilead in the land of the Amorites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and uh, Benjamin and the house of Ephraim so that Israel, watch this, was greatly distressed. Now look at these three things. This is what they did. This is what they're, 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 they're suffering. Here is the calamity. They were afflicted. That word is used only twice in all of the word of God. Now, you're going to read affliction an awful lot in Scripture, but the, the, the word that is translated afflicted here is used only twice. Here and in Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses where Moses talks about God afflicting the Egyptians. The word literally in the Hebrew means to shatter. It's as if you go home today 
walk to your china cabinet, get out a fine piece of that bone china that you got when you were married that you've never used, and you take it out, and you walk out to the driveway, and you smash that thing down on the driveway, and it shatters into a hundred different pieces. That's the word, to take something and shatter it. That's what these enemies of, uh, of the people of God, that's what their enemies did to him. It shattered them. In every way, they had broken government, they had broken homes, they had broken lives, they had a broken religious system. In every way, they were shattered. Their work life was shattered. In every way, your life could be shattered, they were shattered. Now watch at the second word, because whereas that describes them physiologically or politically or vocationally, the next word describes them emotionally. They were crushed. That is the result of the shattering. They were shattered and they became crushed, discouraged, despairing, uh, just completely out of all hopes. And what that did, look, is that it brought about great distress. That's at the end of verse 9. They were greatly distressed. Now that word distressed there is interesting because it means everything is coming in on you and it's beginning to squeeze you to the point to where you feel like I can't breathe and this is squeezing the life out of me. I want to tell you something. Last year I was going through something just like that. There was a squeezing going on in my life. And back uh, last uh, year, back in January, it may have been on back into the fall of 2017, I picked one psalm, it was Psalm 118, that I would read three times a day. Every morning I got up, I read it. Every day around noon or in the afternoon, I would read it. In the evening, I would come back to it. Sometimes I would get in bed and read it again. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, uh, for his loving kindness and is everlasting. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Uh, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let all of those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. I cried to the Lord in my distress, in my squeezing. In that which was squeezing the life out of me, I cried to the Lord from my distress and the Lord answered my prayer and he set me down in a broad place. That broad place for me is called Valleydale. That was the place God put me where I was no longer in the squeezing. Let me tell you something. They were being squeezed. The life was being squeezed out of them. That's the calamity of leaving God. Now look at the cry. The cry comes in verse 10. The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you. For indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites? We've read all of that. You come to the end of verse 12. He said, I delivered you from their hands. Yet you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. You say, well, now, wait a minute. That's not right. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't like that. I thought, I thought God, would, if we call out, God's gonna deliver us. 
I think that's what I've preached all my life. I think that's what I've heard all my life. If I rub that lamp, <laughs> that genie's going to jump out and give me everything I want. Amen. That's your church. That's my church. That's the Southern Baptist Convention right now. We've got a genie in a lamp. And all we need to do is go up with the magic words. And when we say the magic words, he's going to jump. I want to let you in on something. God doesn't have to save anybody. Not a single soul. God doesn't have to save anybody. He is not some kind of divine celestial vending machine in the sky that if you drop your right verbiage coin in, then what you've asked for always pops out. You say, but they repented here. Verse 10, verse 10 says this, we have sinned against you for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baal. Let me tell you something, folks. That's not repentance. That's rehearsal. Rehearsal is I'm gonna rehearse a few magic words and God, you're to do your stuff. You ever see that in your church? Yeah, I'll answer you. Y'all just sit there quiet if you want to. Sure you do. I, listen, I've seen it over the 40 years of pastoring. Every size church you can possibly imagine. I've gone from 12 to 12,000. Let me tell you something. In everything, in every one of them, they're all the same. They're, they're people that come in, that their marriage is falling apart. Their relationship with their children or grandchildren is falling apart. Their work life is falling apart. Their own personal life is falling apart. Then, oh, I'm going to show up because if I show up, throw a little something in the plate, maybe mouth the words of a hymn that I remember, and if I just do this a Sunday or two, then God's going to work it all out. You know what they were asking here? God save us from the effects of what we've dug ourselves into, but leave us in our sin. We don't want to be delivered from that. You say, when a preacher, where do you get that from? Hang on. I'm going to get you there. You just need to let that settle in and sink in for just a minute. They come with a rehearsal. There's no repentance here. There's no repentance. There's regret and there's remorse aplenty. But there's no repentance I watch it week in and week out. I see it week in and week out. People who show up and they regret what they've been caught in. They are remorseful because they're having to pay for something. But I never see repentance anymore. We've lost all sense of what it means to repent before God. And let me tell you, we wonder what's happening in our churches. What's happening in our churches is coming from what's in the pulpit. I don't know if you remember when Saddam Hussein was captured. They found him down in that spider hole, those special forces. They pulled him up out of that spider hole and they took him off to an undisclosed location. And what they did was this. There was, uh, there was a guy that had been put in charge of a new governing council, the new National Congress of Iraq. His name was Ahmad Kalabi. And they brought Ahmad Kalabi in to speak to Saddam Hussein. He had been held in 1979 in one of Saddam Hussein's torture chambers. They tortured him. I think they'd killed some of his family. 
And he wanted to go in and speak. They wanted him to go in and say, there's a whole new government here. You're out. You're on your way to the gallows. And uh, I, I wanted to come in. You tortured me. You held me. And I'm coming in here to look at you. He went in and he looked at him and he said to Saddam Hussein, tell me what you're going to say to God on the day of judgment. Now he's talking about no God. He's talking about Allah, which is no God. But listen to the conviction of this. It's convicting to me how convicting he is and he doesn't even believe the right stuff. What are you going to say to God? What are you going to be accountable to to God on the day of judgment? What are you going to tell him about Halabajah, the site of the great chemical attack that killed all of these children and women and old people and just masses of people? What are you going to say about the mass graves? What are you going to say about the Iran-Iraq war? Thousands and thousands of people executed. What are you going to tell God? And Ahmad came out and he looked at the American forces there and he said, he doesn't even have any regret, much less any repentance. When they put the noose around Saddam Hussein's neck, and I'm going to quote him, they put the noose around his neck and they gave him the chance to say something. All he said was, Iraq can go to not even remorse. You don't even need to think about repentance. Listen, here's the, here's the thing that breaks my heart today is even in the church, there's no repentance, but we've gotten to the place where there's no regret and there's no remorse. Let me tell you something. Regret only touches the emotions. It never changes the heart. But now listen, let me give you the second thing. Repentance reveals a change in heart and not just a change of emotion. Now look at what happens here. When God tells them, I'm not going to deliver you, you go cry to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. The sons of Israel said to the Lord. Now watch this. There's a difference here. We have sinned. Do to us what seems good to you. Now that's part of it right there. They confess we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only deliver us this day. So they put away from them the foreign gods. These foreign gods had become nothing more than, I call this whole book, the gods of disappointment. Everything that I've gotten tangled up with in my life that has not honored Jesus Christ has been a disappointment to me. You remember that from your childhood? I remember as a child, I can remember a huge disappointment I'd get up, I didn't like to eat breakfast, but I'd eat cereal because I wanted what was on the back of that box. And if you'd send in 1,157 box tops, you would get something that was on the back of that box. And every morning I'd get up and I'd eat that cereal that I really didn't care. Sometimes I'd eat two bowls of it if I could do it because I wanted to get through it as fast so mama would go back and buy another box of that stuff because on the back of that box was an airplane that I wanted to fly. And that little boy on there looks like he's having the biggest fun. He's throwing that plane, and that plane is zooming off into the nowhere. 
And as I was doing that, my daddy would tell me from time to time, now, son, what's on the back of that box is going to be a big disappointment. You need to know it's not going to be exactly that. Well, I, it seemed like for years I ate cereal, and I finally collected all of those box tops, and I sent it off with a self-addressed stamped envelope, which I didn't understand why they wanted that, but I was able to do it, sent it off, and I'd come home every day from school excited as to what was going to be there for me. And every day it just got a little longer and a little longer until one day I came home and uh, I think it was my mom said, there, there's something, or my dad said, there's something in there on the counter for you. And I ran in there and when I saw it was the envelope, I already knew this is not what I thought it was going to be. And I opened it up and it wasn't even balsa wood. It was just old styrofoam. And I punched that thing out as best I could punch out in disappointment with my dad saying, it's not what you thought, is it? And I didn't want him to know. I didn't want to say, you were right. I just wanted to, I wanted the thing to work like I wanted it to work. That's sin. I want sin to work the way I want sin to work. But let me tell you something. You don't master sin. It masters you. And that plane was a huge disappointment. Just like these gods were huge disappointment. They didn't master those gods. Those gods mastered them. So they confessed, we have sinned. Now this is what I want you to see. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Now let me tell you, repentance will involve that right there. God, I'm not going to come to you and tell you how, how you do this. The fact of the matter is I have sinned and whatever you do to me is the right thing. Can you say that? Could you bow your head right now and just say, Lord, whatever you do in my life is going to be the right thing. Listen, you know who else did that? 2 Samuel chapter 24, David. When God starts at the beginning of that chapter, I mean, this guy's an old man. You think by this time, I've got it down. Here he is as an old man. God said, don't you number the people. The only number you need to ever worry about is number one, God. Amen? You, you don't need to worry about some of y'all need to repent because you, you think church is numbers or you think church is budgets or you think church is size. Am I, am, is it getting uncomfortable? Let me, I'll bear down a little more. You know, church is my popularity. Church is where my fame grows, right? We need to repent of some of that. But here's David who comes and he says, I'm gonna number them anyway. And he numbers him. And Gad the prophet walks in and he says, okay, big boy, you did it. You got three choices here. Seven years of famine, three months before your enemies as they defeat you, or three days of pestilence. And what does David do? This gives you the connection of repentance right here to this passage. Let's fall into the hands of God. Let's just fall. God who had promised three days of pestilence at the end of the first day said, that's it, that's enough. That's what they know here. That's what they say here. God, whatever you do to us is enough. Then then watch this. Just deliver us, save us, be our deliverer. Verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and they serve the Lord. You see that? That's what repentance is. Repentance is an action, folks. It's what you experience. They put the gods away from them. Shuv in the Old Testament is the word we translate for repentance. It means that I'm walking this way and I shuv, I turn. That, that's the whole concept of repentance. Metanoia, 
The verse that Dr. Allen quoted out of uh, First Peter, Second Peter. Um, would that none would perish, but that all would come to what? Metanoia. Meta with noeo, noose, noodle, mind. With mind. Change of mind. I've changed my mind. Now listen, let me tell you something. I preach repentance. I've had Christians tell me I was wrong for doing that. Because they say, you don't need to keep going on repenting. Listen, as long as I keep sinning, I'm going to repent. I'm going to tell God I'm sorry. And I hope and pray I got sense enough that as soon as I sin, I do it. Some will say repentance is work. You have got to be kidding me. Repentance is not work. Repentance is just agreeing God's right about what I've been doing that's wrong. That's what repentance is. And so here they come and repent. Now you want to see one of the most tender statements in a verse in all the word of God? Look at this. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he, God, could bear the misery of Israel. Yes, praise God is right. Now that's what you call grace. That's what you call the goodness of God is that God looks down on us and our sin and he sees us in misery and he can't bear it. He can't bear it. And he comes with his mercy and his grace and his goodness and what does he do? He pulls our old fat out the fire once again. But he does it when we repent. And you say, that's hard to preach in a church. Let me tell you something. If you don't preach that, I'm not sure people get saved. I'm going to show you what happened at Valleydale Sunday morning. I think I got a picture here of a couple. This couple had been visiting for five years. Now, I've been at Valleydale a little over a year. They've been coming off and on for five years. Uh, that's Richard. That's Allie. Nobody knew this, uh, but uh, a couple of months ago, Richard and Allie fell under conviction. That still happens. They got under conviction because they had been living together for those five years. Never active in church. Just show up to service from now and then. Never involved because they felt guilt. Everything that you're told you can't preach today. Well, they came to our new members class. You go to a class before you can become a member, and they went to the new members class, and to that young man, Dr. Chesney, right over there, who is my son-in-law, they went to him and they said, we come, listen to this, in repentance of our sin. We've been living together. And it's not right before God. Allie said, I've been living life my own way all these years and I've not uh, done what God's called me to do. And they gave their lives to Christ. They agreed because I will not marry people that live together. They agreed that they would go to separate bedrooms. And I said, now listen, I, I can't, I'm not coming over there and check on you at night. But let me tell you, you're not promising Mac Brunson. You're saying this to God. And they went to separate bedrooms and this past Sunday morning, I married them at the beginning of the service. Now look at this next picture. I baptized them both 
or Barry baptized them both at the end of the service. Along with, uh, we had 11 people baptized Sunday morning and seven more professions of faith. Let me tell you something. You need to be preaching repentance, preacher. You don't need to be afraid of it, but I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you to stand with me right now. All of us standing. All of us standing, and I want you to bow your heads with me. All of our heads bowed because, let me tell you, I made the comment that what's wrong in our church is often what's standing in the pulpit. Because we don't want to admit this, and we surely don't want to admit this in front of a bunch of preachers. But the fact of the matter is, all of us have got some stuff we need to repent of. In fact, what you may need to repent of this morning is not preaching on repentance. You may need to say to the Lord, Lord, I have preached everything but the gospel. I have dealt with everything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have failed to tell our people that to as many as believed on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. I have failed to tell our people that uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our unrighteousness. We have failed to tell our people the gospel We've preached everything that is palatable to this generation, everything except the gospel of Jesus Christ because we're afraid we're going to offend somebody. I want to tell you something. I'd rather be offensive with the gospel than I had be palatable to this generation. Maybe that's what you need to repent of. Father, all of us standing here, most of us, the majority of us, you've entrusted the church for which you died to. You died for your bride. She is your bride, and you died for her. And now you called us. You didn't just save us, Father, but you called us to the gospel ministry, and many of us have done everything in our power to increase a number or to increase our status in the community or in the convention. And we have failed to preach the gospel. Forgive us. And help us to stop speculating on why people won't come. But help us to understand that if we'll preach the word, you'll take care of the coming. For we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen.